Section 54 of Elia and the Last Essays of Elia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Elia and the Last Essays of Elia by Charles Lamb. Popular Fallacies. Fallacies 10 to 12. 10. That handsome is, that handsome does. Those who use this proverb can never have seen Mrs. Conradie. The soul, if we may believe Plotinus, is a ray from the celestial beauty. As she partakes more or less of this heavenly light, she informs, with corresponding characters, the fleshly tenement which she chooses, and frames to herself a suitable mansion. All which only proves that the soul of Mrs. Conradie, in her pre-existent state, was no great judge of architecture to the same effect in a hymn in honour of beauty divine spencer platonising sings every spirit as it is more pure and hath in it the more of heavenly light so it the fairer body doth procure to habit in and it more fairly dight with cheerful grace and amiable sight for of the soul the body form doth take for soul is form and doth the body make but spencer it is clear, never saw Mrs. Conradi. These poets, we find, are no safe guides in philosophy, for here, in his very next stanza but one, is a saving clause which throws us all out again, and leaves us as much to seek as ever. Yet oft it falls that many a gentle mind dwells in deformed tabernacle drowned, either by chance against the course of kind or through unaptness in the substance found which it assumed of some stubborn ground that will not yield unto her form's direction but is performed with some foul imperfection from which it would follow that spencer had seen somebody like mrs conradie the spirit of this good lady her previous anima must have stumbled upon one of these untoward tabernacles which he speaks of a more rebellious commodity of clay for a ground as the poet calls it no gentle mind and sure hers is one of the gentlest had ever to be dealt with pondering upon her inexplicable visage inexplicable we mean but by this modification of the theory we have come to a conclusion that if one must be plain it is better to be plain all over than amidst a tolerable residue of features to hang out one that shall be exceptionable no one can say of mrs conradie's countenance that it would be better if she had but a nose it is impossible to pull her to pieces in this manner we have seen the most malicious beauties of her own sex baffled in the attempt at a selection the tout ensemble defies particularizing it is too complete too consistent as we may say to admit of these invidious reservations it is not as if some apelles had picked out here a lip and there a chin out of the collected ugliness of greece to frame a model by it is a symmetrical whole we challenge the minutest connoisseur to cavil at any part or parcel of the countenance in question to say that this or that is improperly placed we are convinced that true ugliness no less than is affirmed of true beauty is the result of 
harmony like that too it reigns without a competitor no one ever saw mrs conradie without pronouncing her to be the plainest woman that ever met with in the course of his life the first time that you are indulged with the sight of her face is an era in your existence ever after you are glad to have seen it like stonehenge no one can pretend to forget it no one ever apologized to her for meeting her in the street on such a day and not knowing her the pretext would be too bare nobody can mistake her for another nobody can say of her i think i have seen that face somewhere but i cannot call to mind where you must remember that in such a parlour it first struck you like a bust you wondered where the owner of the house had picked it up you wondered more when it began to move its lips so mildly too no one ever thought of asking her to sit for a picture lockets are for remembrance and it would be clearly superfluous to hang an image at your heart which once seen can never be out of it it is not a mean face either its entire originality precludes that neither is it of that order of plain faces which improve upon acquaintance some very good but ordinary people by an unwearied perseverance in good offices put a cheat upon our eyes chuckle our senses out of their natural impressions and set us upon discovering good indications in a countenance which at first sight promised nothing less we detect gentleness which had escaped us lurking about an upper lip but when mrs conradi has done you a service her face remains the same when she has done you a thousand and you know that she is ready to double the number still it is that individual face neither can you say of it that it would be a good face if it was not marked by the smallpox a compliment which is always more admissive than excusatory for either mrs conradi never had the smallpox or as we say took it kindly no it stands upon its own merits fairly there it is it is her mark her token that which she is known by eleven that we must not look a gift horse in the mouth nora laid his age in the parish register we hope we have more delicacy than to do either but some faces spare us the trouble of these dental inquiries and what if the beast which my friend would force upon my acceptance prove upon the face of it a sorry rosinant a lean ill-favoured jade whom no gentleman could think of setting up in his stables must i rather than not be obliged to my friend make her a companion to eclipse or lightfoot a horse-giver no more than a horse-seller has a right to palm his spavined article upon us for good wear an equivalent is expected in either case and with my own good will i would no more be cheated out of my thanks than out of my money some people have a knack of putting upon you gifts of no real value to engage you to substantial gratitude we thank them for nothing our friend mitis carries this humour of never refusing a present to the very point of absurdity if it were possible to couple the ridiculous with so much mistaken delicacy and real good-nature not an apartment in his fine house and he has a true taste in household decorations but is stuffed up with some preposterous print or mirror the worst adapted to his panels that may be the presence of his friends that know his weakness 
while his noble van dykes are displaced to make room for a set of daubs the work of some wretched artist of his acquaintance who having had them returned upon his hands for bad likenesses finds his account in bestowing them here gratis the good creature has not the heart to mortify the painter at the expense of an honest refusal it is pleasant if it did not vex one at the same time to see him sitting in his dining parlour surrounded with obscure aunts and cousins to god knows whom while the true lady marys and lady bettys of his own honourable family in favour to these adopted frights are consigned to the staircase and the lumber-room in like manner his goodly shelves are one by one stripped of his favourite old authors to give place to a collection of presentation copies the flower and bran of modern poetry a presentation copy reader if haply you are yet innocent of such favours is a copy of a book which does not sell sent you by the author with his foolish autograph at the beginning of it for which if a stranger he only demands your friendship if a brother author he expects from you a book of yours which does sell in return we can speak to experience having by us a tolerable assortment of these gift horses not to ride a metaphor to death we are willing to acknowledge that in some gifts there is sense a duplicate out of a friend's library where he has more than one copy of a rare author is intelligible there are favours short of the pecuniary a thing not fit to be hinted at among gentlemen which confer as much grace upon the acceptor as the offerer the kind we confess which is most to our palate is of those little conciliatory missives which for their vehicle generally choose a hamper little odd presents of game fruit perhaps wine though it is essential to the delicacy of the latter that it be home-made we love to have our friend in the country sitting thus at our table by proxy to apprehend his presence though a hundred miles may be between us by a turkey whose goodly aspects reflect to us his plump corpusculum to taste him in grouse or woodcock to feel him gliding down in the toast peculiar to the latter to concorporate him in a slice of canterbury brawn this is indeed to have him within ourselves to know him intimately such participation is methinks unitive as the old theologians phrase it for these considerations we should be sorry if certain restrictive regulations which are thought to bear hard upon the peasantry of this country were entirely done away with a hare as the law now stands makes many friends caius conciliates titius knowing his goo with a leash of partridges titius suspecting his partiality for them passes them to lucius who in his turn preferring his friend's relish to his own makes them over to marcius till in their ever-widening progress and round of unconscious circummigration they distribute the seeds of harmony over half a parish we are well disposed to this kind of sensible remembrances and are the less apt to be taken by these little airy tokens impalpable to the palate which under the name of rings lockets keepsakes amuse some people's fancy mightily we could never away with these indigestible trifles they are the very kickshaws and foppery of friendship twelve that home is home 
though it is never so homely. Homes there are, we are sure, that are no homes, the home of the very poor man, and another which we shall speak to presently, crowded places of cheap entertainment, and the benches of alehouses, if they could speak, might bear mournful testimony to the first. To them the very poor man resorts for an image of the home, which he cannot find at home. For a starved grate, and a scanty firing, that is not enough to keep alive the natural heat in the fingers of so many shivering children with their mother, he finds in the depth of winter always a blazing hearth, and a hob to warm his pittance of beer by. Instead of the clamours of a wife made gaunt by famishing, he meets with a cheerful attendance beyond the merits of the trifle which he can afford to spend. He has companions which his home denies him, for the very poor man has no visitors. He can look into the goings-on of the world and speak a little to politics. At home there are no politics stirring but the domestic. All interests, real or imaginary, all topics that should expand the mind of man and connect him to sympathy with general existence, are crushed in the absorbing consideration of food to be obtained for the family. Beyond the price of bread, news is senseless and impertinent. At home there is no larder. Here there is at least a show of plenty, and while he cooks his lean scrap of butcher's meat before the common bars, or munches his humbler cold viands, his relishing bread and cheese with an onion, in a corner where no one reflects upon his poverty, he has sight of the substantial joint providing for the landlord and his family. He takes an interest in the dressing of it, and while he assists in removing the trivet from the fire, he feels that there is such a thing as beef and cabbage, which he was beginning to forget at home. All this while he deserts his wife and children. But what wife and what children? Prosperous men who object to this desertion image to themselves some clean, contented family like that which they go home to. But look at the countenance of the poor wives who follow and persecute their good man to the door of the public house which he is about to enter, when something like shame would restrain him if stronger misery did not induce him to pass the threshold. That face, ground by want in which every cheerful, every conversable lineament has been long effaced by misery, is that a face to stay at home with? Is it more a woman or a wild cat? Alas, it is the face of the wife of his youth that once smiled upon him. It can smile no longer. What comforts can it share? What burthens can it lighten? Oh, tis a fine thing to talk of the humble meal shared together. But what if there be no bread in the cupboard? The innocent prattle of his children takes out the sting of a man's poverty. But the children of the very poor do not prattle. It is none of the least frightful features in that condition that there is no childishness in its dwellings. Poor people, said a sensible old nurse to us once, do not bring up their children they drag them up. The little careless darling of the wealthier nursery in their hovel is transformed betimes into a premature reflecting person. No one has time to dandle it, no one thinks it worth while to coax it, to soothe it, to toss it up and down, to humour it. There is none to kiss away its tears, if it cries it can only be beaten. It has been prettily said that, 
A babe is fed with milk and praise, but the aliment of this poor babe was thin, unnourishing. The return to its little baby tricks and efforts to engage attention, bitter, ceaseless objurgation. It never had a toy or knew what a coral meant. It grew up without the lullaby of nurses. It was a stranger to the patient fondle, the hushing caress, the attracting novelty, the costlier plaything, or the cheaper off-hand contrivance to divert the child, the prattled nonsense, best sense to it, the wise impertinences, the wholesome lies, the apt story interposed that puts a stop to present sufferings, and awakens the passion of young wonder. It was never sung to, no one ever told it a tale of the nursery. It was dragged up to live or die as it happened. It had no young dreams. It broke at once into the iron realities of life. A child exists not for the very poor, as any object of dalliance. It is only another mouth to be fed, a pair of little hands to be betimes inured to labour. It is the rival, till it can be the cooperator for food with the parent. It is never his mirth, his diversion, his solace. It never makes him young again, with recalling his young times. The children of the very poor have no young times. It makes the very heart to bleed to overhear the casual street talk between a poor woman and her little girl, a woman of the better sort of poor, in a condition rather above the squalid beings which we have been contemplating. It is not of toys, of nursery books, of summer holidays, fitting the age, of the promised sight or play, of praised sufficiency at school, it is of mangling and clear-starching, of the price of coals or of potatoes, the questions of the child that should be the very outpourings of curiosity in idleness, are marked with forecast and melancholy providence. It has come to be a woman before it was a child. It has learned to go to market. It chaffers, it haggles, it envies, it murmurs. It is knowing, acute, sharpened. It never prattles. Had we not reason to say that the home of the very poor is no home? Yet there is another home, which we are constrained to deny to be one. It has a larder which the home of the poor man wants, its fireside conveniences of which the poor dream not. But with all this it is no home, it is the house of the man that is infested with many visitors. May we be branded for the veriest churl, if we deny our heart to the many noble-hearted friends that at times exchange their dwelling for our poor roof. It is not of guests that we complain, but of endless, purposeless visitants, droppers-in, as they are called. We sometimes wonder from what sky they fall. It is the very error of the position of our lodging. Its horoscopy was ill-calculated, being just situate in a medium, a plaguy suburban mid-space, fitted to catch idlers from town or country. We are older than we were, and age is easily put out of its way. We have fewer sands in our glass to reckon upon, and we cannot brook to see them drop in endlessly succeeding impertinences. At our time of life, to be alone sometimes is as needful as sleep. It is the refreshing sleep of the day, the growing infirmities of age manifest themselves in nothing more strongly than in an inveterate dislike of interruption. The thing which we are doing we wish to be permitted to do. 
we have neither much knowledge nor devices, but there are fewer in the place to which we hasten. We are not willingly put out of our way, even at a game of nine-pins. While youth was, we had vast reversions in time future. We are reduced to a present pittance, and obliged to economise in that article. We bleed away our moments now as hardly as our ducats. We cannot bear to have our thin wardrobe eaten and fretted into by moths. We are willing to barter our good time with a friend who gives us in exchange his own. Herein is the distinction between the genuine guest and the visitant. This latter takes your good time and gives you his bad in exchange. The guest is domestic to you as your good cat or household bird. The visitant is your fly that flaps in at your window and out again, leaving nothing but a sense of disturbance and victuals spoiled. The inferior functions of life begin to move heavily. We cannot concoct our food with interruption. Our chief meal, to be nutritive, must be solitary. With difficulty we can eat before a guest, and never understand what the relish of public feasting meant. Meats have no sapor, nor digestion fair play in a crowd. The unexpected coming in of a visitant stops the machine. There is a punctual generation who time their calls to the precise commencement of your dining hour, not to eat, but to see you eat. Our knife and fork drop instinctively, and we feel that we have swallowed our latest morsel. Others again show their genius, as we have said, in knocking the moment you have just sat down to a book. They have a peculiar compassionating sneer with which they hope that they do not interrupt your studies, though they flutter off the next moment to carry their impertinences to the nearest student that they can call their friend. The tone of the book is spoiled. We shut the leaves, and with Dante's lovers read no more that day. It were well if the effect of intrusion were simply coextensive with its presence, but it mars all the good hours afterwards. These scratches in appearance leave an orifice that closes not hastily. It is a prostitution of the bravery of friendship, says worthy Bishop Taylor, to spend it upon impertinent people who are, it may be, loads to their families, but can never ease my loads. This is the secret of their gaddings, their visits and morning calls. They too have homes, which are no homes. End of section 54